Father, this morning we just celebrate your love. We, we're singing about it. We're reminding ourselves of the greatness of your love, Lord, knowing that we can't grasp it, we can't fathom it. The height, the depth, the breadth of your love is an ocean that is endless, that we can swim deeper and deeper and deeper and never find the bottom of your great love for us. God, this morning we just pray that you would overwhelm us, that you would capture our hearts, that we would deep in our souls, Lord, have your love shed abroad by your Holy Spirit, that you would take us and show us how it is that you've demonstrated your love to sinners like us, people like us, God, who have turned away from you, who have tried to find life in, in everywhere else, that have broken all of your laws, Lord, that, that you then came after us, you ran after us, you sent your Son for us. God, we, we know these facts in our head, but God, this morning we pray that you would drive them deep into our hearts, that we would truly be melted again, that we would be renewed in the greatness of our sense of your love for us. God, we long to be settled in you, to be rested in you, that our restless souls would find our rest in you. So, Lord, as we open your word today, we're praying that you would meet us here, that you would speak directly to our hearts, that you would open up your heart and pour out your love upon our thirsty souls. Lord, we long for you. We crave for you the living God. We ask that you would transform us by the power of your word today. It's in Jesus' name that we worship. Amen. Uh, as you're taking a seat there, just want to invite you to open up your Bible to Psalm 117. Uh, if you were here a few minutes ago, we all read it out loud together. Uh, which was great. And um, if, if you don't have a Bible and you, and you need one, uh, there's Bibles uh, against the back wall there. Uh, feel free to, to grab one. And if, if you actually need one uh, for your own life, feel free to, to grab it, take it. It's a gift from us to you. Uh, this morning, we're going to be spending most of our time in Psalm 117. Uh, this will change your life. This will change your life is a statement that you and I hear all the time that rarely makes good on its promise. Uh, when somebody comes up to us and says, this will change your life, uh, usually it's about something small and trivial like uh, a new place to eat or some new gadget that makes life easier or better. Uh, this will change your life rarely actually changes our life. Uh, I can think of a couple trivial illustrations from my own life, but one, for example, is uh, I personally will never buy steaks from anywhere else again other than Lowe's Foods. There's just something about the steaks from Lowe's Foods that now that I've bought them, cooked them, I cannot go back. I cannot go anywhere else any longer. I know that I will have to take out a second mortgage to keep buying the steaks from Lowe's Foods, <laughs> but I can't go back. Uh, there's lots of other little trivial examples I can make like that, uh, but then every once in a while, there is actually something serious, something real that really does come into our life that changes things forever. Uh, I can think back over my sort of story, and, and there's a couple things that, that, I, that come to my mind when I, when I think about that. One is I can very specifically remember the season of my life when I actually started reading God's Word for the first time. That I, that I began opening my Bible and, and reading His Word, and it changed everything. And I can't go back. I, I can't imagine life like it was before, after that moment. Um, I think back on a few friends who over the years have had the courage to lovingly point out to me certain blind spots, certain sins, certain hidden idols in my life. And because they loved me enough to be courageously honest, that changed my life forever. I can't go back. I can't see my life being the same after, after those friends were helpful, helpful to me. And then we come to what we're going to talk about this morning, and that is the love of God. And I can very specifically remember the season of my life when I went from believing that, yeah, maybe God had this general love for the world out there to the point where I came to, to be able to say, no, God loves me. And that changes everything. Uh, in Ephesians chapter 3, Verse 19, the Apostle Paul is praying 
for this church in Ephesus. And I, I don't know what you think about prayers. I don't know what you think are important prayers. But as, as we see the prayers uh, from Paul throughout the scriptures, he's, he's never praying for people's circumstances to change. He, he's rarely praying for people to get healed or, or for things that you and I t- typically think are so important. Paul has a deeper understanding, a more eternal understanding. He's praying for things that change eternity. In Ephesians 3.19, he prays that this church will know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. See, Paul, the Apostle Paul, he knows that if you and I are truly to encounter the real, honest love of God, it would change us forever. That if we encountered God's love for us, that we cannot be the same after that. That it has so many vast implications that it would radically change our lives to know this love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. See, in a world that you and I live in that is rampant with radical individualism, where we all live so isolated, so autonomous, so separated from everything and everyone, we are starving for the love of God. We have brought these unbearable burdens and placed them on our shoulders. This burden to find security for our lives, this burden to satisfy our own souls, this burden to achieve the blessed life in our own strength and by our own power. These are burdens that we can't carry. And so this enters in this totally, radically reorienting truth that if there is a God who loves us, then it means that we are actually not on our own in this world. That these burdens, the burdens we feel for security and satisfaction and blessing, they're actually not on our shoulders. That there's a Father who loves us and who is pouring out His goodness upon us and who is showering us By free grace, all those things that we so desperately long for. There really aren't that many things in life that will change change us. There really aren't many things that, that we could say, this will change your life. But one of them, one of them is the love of God. And this morning, we're going to be unpacking the shortest psalm and the shortest chapter in the Bible. And we're going to be asking this question. What difference does the love of God make? What difference does the love of God make? Uh, So first, this morning, from Psalm 117, the love of God calls to the nations. The love of God calls to the nations. I, I just want to read the psalm again. It's only two verses, so I'll read it. It says, Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol Him, all peoples. For great is His steadfast love toward us, And the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. So how would we categorize this psalm? This psalm is a call to worship. This psalm is inviting us to praise God, to exalt God, to lift Him up. But why? Well, verse 2 starts, For great is His steadfast love. So it is God's love that calls us to praise Him. It is God's love for us that calls us to exalt Him, to lift Him up, to elevate Him. It is God's love displayed that invites us in to worship and praise Him. Uh, this week I was working in my office and uh, I got a call. Look down. It's my wife. She's calling me. And so I answer it. And the, 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 the sound on the other side is a lot more excited and a lot more enthusiastic than normal. And Allie says to me, she says, Benjamin has something to tell you. So our four-year-old son, Benjamin, starts screaming through the phone and explaining to me how he just learned how to swim without help from mommy and without his swimmies. And in an instant, in an instant, we just all erupt in joyous praise. This is amazing. Woohoo! Awesome. This is so great. We don't even know who's saying what. This literally was a call to praise. The reason they called me was to invite me in to celebrate something. And that's exactly what Psalm 117 is. Psalm 117 is a call to us. It is a call to us about God's great love, and it is inviting us to celebrate Him, to to lift Him up, to exalt Him, to praise Him for His unmatched and unrivaled love for us. And we think about what it is that calls the nations to praise, what it is that calls 
people to praise God. Most fundamentally, at its core, at its sum, it is the cross of Jesus Christ. That the call that goes out, the call that rings out to the world to, to invite people to worship and praise God, it is the cross of Jesus. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul is dealing with a church there who has had a misstep. And one of the things that he needs to do is he needs to clarify for them what his purpose is. So what's his purpose? When Jesus set his hand on Paul's life and claimed him as an apostle, what's he supposed to be doing? He says in 1 Corinthians 1, 17 and 18, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The church's mission is to be God's agents carrying forth the mission of proclamation. Our mission is to say something, to declare something, to display before the world something. And what is it that we are called to display? We are called to display the love of God in Jesus Christ. The great love of God that is distilled, that is summarized, that is most highly and effectively demonstrated in the death of Jesus Christ for sinners. And so God is calling us, He's inviting us, He's beckoning us to worship Him, to praise Him. Why? Because of His great love that reconciles sinners to Himself. Uh, but let's zero in on who it is that's called to praise. The psalm calls the nations to praise. To praise. And the nations means all peoples everywhere. All peoples everywhere. Now, now this, this might not seem very revolutionary to us. I don't, I don't know if that sounds revolutionary to you. But if, if, you, if you were to go back at the time where Psalm 117 was composed... This would have been a revolutionary idea. See, all throughout the history of the world, there have been these tribal deities, right? Uh, maybe a regional god or, or a national god, right? Everybody has their own little god that they, that they worship. But Psalm 117 is saying, no, 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 no. The God of the Bible, this God, the God that we're worshiping, the God that we're being invited to praise, he, he is the God of all nations. He is no tribal deity. He is no regional God. He is no national God. He is the God of the world. I once got into a conversation with someone about my faith in Jesus. Uh, it was somebody that I've, knew, I've known my whole life and who grew up around the church but never actually put their faith in Jesus. And I was talking to him about why it is that I believe in Jesus, uh, why, why it is that I believe that Christianity actually makes the most sense of the world in which we live. And he brought forward an objection. And he said, well, I think that the only reason that you believe in Jesus is because you were born in, in America to a family that believes in Jesus. And that is a common objection that uh, we hear all the time. That, yeah, okay, you believe, but the only reason you believe is because where you're from. The only, only reason you believe is because of what family you were born into. But see, that objection misunderstands both the current reality of the world, and it also misunderstands the history of the world. Uh, maybe it's true that uh, one of the factors in my belief in Jesus is my family. But it is also true that over the last 2,000 years, millions and millions and millions of people have broken with their families to place faith in Jesus, have broken with the traditions and customs of their life so that they can walk with and follow Jesus. See, when Jesus Christ died on the cross outside of Jerusalem for the last 2,000 years, that detonated a bomb of God's unfailing love that has spread across the globe, that has broken through hard ground on every single continent, you might be surprised today to know that it is estimated that there are about 400 million Christians in Asia. You might be even more surprised to know that there are almost 700 million Christians in Africa. Guys, the God we worship, the God we serve, He is not a tribal deity. He is not the God of America. He is not the God of a particular kind of person. He is not the God of a region. He is not the God of a nation. He is the God of the universe. 
And his love is spreading out, capturing hearts from people throughout the world. This God is a God who detonated a bomb of his love, and it has been going out further and further and extending to more and more peoples. And it is actually more likely today that you would be a Christian if you lived in Africa than you would be a Christian if you lived in North America. That's wild. We get so limited. We get so focused. We think that we're the only ones who exist on this planet. No, 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 no. God is the God of the nations. And so what does that mean? Well, it means this morning that everybody, including you and me, we are all called to praise this God for his love. It means there's nobody who is outside of the scope of God's invitation. That that God is not a God of a particular class of people. God is not a, a God of a particular ethnicity. God is not a God of a particular nation or region. God is the God of the nations, and that means, that means this morning, everybody in here, you're invited. You are invited to know the love of this God. You're invited for the, the pressure that you feel to find satisfaction, the pressure you feel to secure your life, the pressure you feel to clinch on to the blessed life with all your power within you. That pressure rolls off. You're invited to praise a God who loves you. And what it also means is that for those of us who do know the love of God, for those of us who have come to experience this great love of God in Jesus Christ, we have been called, we have been called as those who call to the nations. We have been given this wonderful privilege of living lives and proclaiming God's truth so that other people would be drawn in to praise and worship this great God of love. Earlier this year, we studied the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus told us who we are, who his church is. Jesus said that that, that we, that us, foolish, small-minded, impotent people like us, we, he says, are the salt of the earth and the light of the earth, that in God's wisdom, in his eternal wisdom, for some reason, he's chosen us to display to the world his great love, to proclaim to the world his great love, that our call is to call the nations. Our call is to invite anyone who will listen to praise this great God. But what we can't do this morning is assume that we understand God's love. We've been talking some about God's love already, but what we really need to do is we sort of need to take a deep dive into God's love. And so second today, second this morning, the love of God captures our hearts. The love of God captures our hearts. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to slowly unpack the beginning of verse 2, kind of word by word, and we're going to see four things about God's love that captures our hearts. Four things about God's love that captures our hearts. So the first reason that God's love captures our hearts is because it is a great love. Verse 2 says, for great is his steadfast love. Things that are great are exceptional. They are superior. And this life-changing love of God, it is not a small love. It is not a puny love. It is a great love. The superior and exceptional love of God is seen in how it has been demonstrated. Uh, For for a second, I just want you to kind of think about it like this. Um, I have a love for my wife. That is this consistent love. Now, listen, I'm a human, right? Put that aside for a second, but just think about it like this. I'm a human, I, but I love my wife consistently. Here's my love for her. But all throughout the day, all throughout the week, throughout my life, I get these opportunities to display my love for her. That, that this, this love, this kind of constant, every once in a while, it just gets to reach out and touch her, reach out and show her, to demonstrate, to manifest to her, and the same for her, for her to me. When she treats me with kindness, when she makes sacrifices for me, when she forgives me when I've done her wrong. Her love for me reaches out, it touches me, it shows itself, it demonstrates itself, it it is manifest. Well, in 1 John 4, 9 and 10, it says, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. So here's God's love. Here it is, it's this constant thing. It, it, It is behind the scenes, it is behind the curtain. But then, every once in a while... 
God pushes forward his love to show us what's behind the curtain, to show us and demonstrate to us his deep, endless love for us. And in 1 John 4, 9 and 10, it says, In this, in this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Of all the ways that God has demonstrated his love, and there are, there are many, there are endless ways that God has pushed forward and demonstrated his love, that God has manifested his love to us. But of all the ways that God has demonstrated his love to us, none is greater than the love of God in the death of Jesus Christ. That what sent Jesus into this world was the great love of God, that what kept Jesus hanging on the cross, bearing the wrath of God that we deserved, was God's love for us. See, some of us get it backwards. Some of us think that the reason that God can love us is because Jesus died for us. So here we are, and here's God, and He just can't love us. But then Jesus dies for us, oh, and now God can love us. But no, 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 it is actually the opposite that here we are, and God loves us. He's pursuing us. But in order to get us back to himself, he had to provide a sacrifice. And so he sends his son, not so that he can love us, but so that he can demonstrate his love for us. But God's great love is not only seen in how it is demonstrated, it is heightened, it is heightened by the objects that he set his love upon. In Romans chapter 5, verse 8, it says, God shows his love. So here it is again. He manifests his love. He pushes it forward. He trots his love out onto center stage. Here's how he does it. God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, it's expected that we love people who love us back. It is a noble thing to love people who are indifferent to our love. But it is unheard of to love people who hate us, to love people who despise us, to love people who would rather wish that we were dead and gone. But that is exactly what we've done to God. This God who made us, this God who crafted us, this God who put us in a perfect place with him, we rejected him. We turned away from him. We saw the list of things that he told us would give us life, and we said, I'd rather do anything than what God says. But there, right there, is God's love, his great love. Because it was right then, right in the middle of our sin, right when we were rejecting him, right when we wished he would just get out of our business, that he sent Jesus to die for us. This is the great love of God. Yes, that he sent Jesus into the world, but it's that he sent Jesus into the world for rebels. He sent Jesus into the world for people who had no deserving. He sent Jesus into the world for, for sinners. So, what captures our heart? The fact that this is a great love. Uh, the second thing that captures our hearts is the fact that it is His love. Uh, I'll read the beginning of verse 2 again. It says, For great is His steadfast love. The, in the emphasis here being not this time on the greatness, but on the fact that it is His love. In other words, guys, this morning we're talking about God. It, it matters in life who loves us. There's probably some people in your life that if they love you or don't love you, it doesn't matter to you at all. But there's other people that you sort of hang on, on whether they love you or don't. That who, who it is that loves us matters a whole lot. And we're talking about God, God loving us. Uh, some of y'all know that one of my hobbies is to play and write music. Uh, if you didn't know that, now you do. I like to play and write music and 
Uh, let's say I, I were to write this song, okay? I write a song and, and, and play it for everybody in here. And, and, you know, a few of you come up and, and you say, wow, you know, I, I love your song. Now, listen, I'm going to be honest with you. That, that, that would be encouraging to me. I would, I would be happy that you love my song. But if somebody like John Legend or, or some other world-renowned producer heard my song and, and he came up to me and said, man, I just love your song. I want to be honest. I mean, his opinion would matter a whole lot more than yours. And here's why, for two reasons. One, a world-renowned producer has heard thousands and thousands of songs. He has a trained ear. He knows exactly, he or she knows exactly what a, a great song is supposed to sound like. And so if they say that they love the song, then their opinion matters more. But I think more importantly is this. If a world-renowned producer hears my song and they love it, they actually have the power to do something about it. They can actually put their love into action. They have the connections. They have the people. They know exactly what to do to get that song out. So this morning, we're talking about the one who, who loves us being God. Whose opinion matters more than his? Who has more worth, more weight, more glory, more importance than God himself? And God himself is the one who is saying, I love you. But then deeper than that, this God who loves us, he is the all-wise one. He is the all-mighty one. He is the all-sovereign one. He is the one who is filled with compassion and mercy and grace. What am I trying to say? I'm trying to say that he has all good things to leverage on our behalf. God actually has the power to put his love into action on our behalf. God's love means that he has this infinite pool of resources to pour out to our disposal. This is why the scripture says that there is not one good thing that he will withhold from us. This captures our hearts, not just that it's a great love, but that it is God who loves us. The third thing that captures our hearts is that it is a steadfast Love. It is a steadfast love. What do, what do I mean by that? What I mean, it doesn't fluctuate. It doesn't go up sometimes and then go down sometimes, and then go up at other times and then go down at other times. And it certainly will not come to an end. Verse 2 clearly says, For great is his steadfast love. The steadfast love of God means that God's love for his people continues resolutely without end. Now, let's be honest. Immediately, there are objections that, that pop up. How, how, how is it possible that you're saying to me that God's love doesn't get bigger or less? How are you saying that it doesn't fluctuate? That, that there aren't times when He loves me more and then times when He loves me less? How, how are you saying that that's possible? Well, uh, 18th century Baptist pastor John Gill deals with three of these objections that many of us might have to the idea that God's love is steadfast, immovable, unchanging. And I want to kind of read a quote to you, and we'll pause along the way and make some comments. This is what John Gill says. He says, there, there never were any stops, lets, or impediments to this love, not the fall of Adam nor the sad effects of it, for God foreknew that we would fall in Adam with others, that we would be transgressors from the womb and do as evil as we could. Yet, this hindered not His taking up thoughts of love toward us, His choice of us, and covenant with us. Pause. We've already asked the question, when was it that God demonstrated His greatest act of love for us? When was it? It was while we were sinners. And so what that means is that the fall of Adam or any of our sins along the way, that cannot be an impediment or a weakening of God's love because it was while we were sinners that God demonstrated His greatest act of love for us. So His love cannot diminish from our sin because He's already shown us that it's while we're in our sin that He loves us the most. Back to the quote. He says, Conversion makes a change in them, brings them from the power of Satan to God, from darkness to light, from bondage to liberty, from fellowship with evil men 
to communion with God, but it makes no change in the love of God. What's he saying? He's saying that when a person becomes a Christian, when God saves and converts someone, there is a radical transformation that takes place in their life. That God does bring us from death to life. He does bring us out from under the power of Satan into the kingdom of his son, Jesus. He takes us out of darkness and he brings us into light. So a radical change does occur. But, John Gill says, God's love does not fluctuate through the change. Why is that? Why is that? Because the reason that anyone is converted, the reason that anyone is brought from death to life, the reason that someone is transformed and changed is owing to God's love. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul's reveling in the great love of God, and he says that it was even while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. You know what that means? It means that no future change, no betterment in our character, no future holiness could make God love us any more than he already does. Why? Because it's his love that causes the change. It's his love that causes holiness. It's his love that produces righteousness in us, not our change that induces love from him. Back to the quote. This is something that I think is really important. The reason that we probably more than any other feel that the love of God might fluctuate, go up and down at times for us, is because of experiences that we've had in our lives. That's the number one reason. It's not what we see in the scriptures. It's not what we read in the Bible, but it is based on the experience of our lives. So John Gill continues. This is so helpful. He says, God changes his dispensations and dealings with them, but never changes his love. He sometimes rebukes and chastises them, but still he loves them. He sometimes hides his face from them, but his love continues the same. The manifestations of his love are various, but love in his own heart is invariable and unchangeable. I want you to imagine for a moment that God's love is like water flowing through a hose. It's been turned on, it's flowing, and it's just nothing, nothing there to stop it. I think a lot of times what you and I think is that there might be something in our past, something in our present, something in our future that might cause a kink to, to, to enter into this flowing love of God. And why is that? Well, we've all lived in and sometimes our lives are going well, and sometimes our lives aren't. Sometimes we have pleasant experiences, and sometimes we have unpleasant experiences. And so we're tempted to think that in those moments of displeasure, in those moments when we're going through tough things, in those moments when it seems like life is falling apart, we, we kind of think to ourselves, well, God's love must be diminished in this moment. And when everything's going well for me, it must be heightened. It must be on full blast. But I don't know about you, but at my house, at my house, there's a nozzle on the end of my hose. So, so, so the water's constantly flowing, but there are di different dispensations of the same water. Same speed, same pressure, but you know, you got the jet, you got the, the spray, you got the gush, you got the mist. Same water, same flow, but different dispensations. And here's what John Gillis is helping us understand about the love of God. That when God blisters us to get the grime off of us, it is just as much His love as when he showers us with his grace. That when God aims his discipline at us, it is just as much his love as when he sends his strength and his power to lift us up. God's love for us is resolutely steadfast. It is immovable. It is unchangeable. It does not fluctuate. But in his fatherly wisdom, there are different dispensations of his love. But it flows to us. All the same, without change, without end. Uh, the fourth reason that God's love captures our hearts is that it is a personal love. That it is a personal love. Verse 2, again, says, For great is His steadfast love toward who? Toward the angels? 
Toward animals? Toward generally no one in particular? No. Great is His steadfast love toward, toward us. The reason we call to the nations to praise our God is because we have known His love for us. In Galatians 2, verse 20, Paul, the Apostle Paul said, The life I live, I now live in the flesh. Sorry, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul's heart, the Apostle Paul, who lived this daringly courageous life for Jesus, he was not gripped by a general love of God. He was not gripped and captured and owned by a Savior who made his salvation a potential. Paul's life was gripped and captured by Jesus Christ who died for him. Paul knew he was the chief of sinners. He knew he did not deserve God's love. And so when it hit him that Jesus loved him, that Jesus died for him, it couldn't help but radically change his life forever. And that's when God's love changes our life too. When we're able to join Paul and say, when Jesus died on the cross, he died for me. That it was my sin that he took in his body on the tree. That he had me in his sights when he thought about the joy that was set before him. That he was glad to endure the pain and suffering to lay down his life because he knew he was purchasing forgiveness for me. That is when the love of God changes our life. When it goes from being something that's out there for everybody to being something that we say, great is his steadfast love for, for us, for his bride, for his people. This morning, if you've never known the personal love of God, pray God would transform your heart, that your hard heart would crack open and that you'd sense just how marvelous the depths of love that sent Jesus to the cross. That you might be able to say, he loves me. So what difference does the love of God make? It captures our hearts. Now, as we move forward today, what we're going to do is quickly, we're going to almost kind of take a peek at, at what we're going to do next week in Psalm 118. Uh, what we're going to see next week in Psalm 118 is that, that because God loves us, if, if this is who He is, if this is what, he, what His love is for us, then His love secures, it leverages, it, it drives, it channels all of His other attributes towards us. But this morning, we're just going to start with one of them, uh, with His faithfulness. And so this morning, third... The love of God secures our future. The love of God secures our future. See, verse 2 says, For great is His steadfast love towards us, but then it adds this. It adds this. And the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. So there's another reason why the nation should praise. There's another reason why people are invited to worship and extol and lift up high this God. It is because God's faithfulness lasts forever. It is enduring. It never comes to a stop. But here's the deal. God's faithfulness isn't automatically comforting. See, all throughout the Bible, there's, there's a lot of different ways that God demonstrates His faithfulness, and one of the ways that God demonstrates His faithfulness is actually by punishing people. God says, if you do this, then I'm going to do this, and then people do this, and God does that. He's faithful. He's true to His Word. When He says, I'm going to do this, He always does it. So God's faithfulness is not automatically comforting to us. It's not automatically something we can sing about, something we can celebrate. When does his faithfulness become something that we can cherish, something, something that we can rest our lives upon? It is when we know that his faithfulness is for us because of his steadfast love. That because he loves me, he'll be faithful to me. He'll be faithful for me. Uh, I want you to think for a second about two different bosses, okay? Two different bosses. You know that both are faithful, you know, both are committed. When they say they're going to do something, they, they always do it. They always follow through. Here's these two bosses. They're, they're both the same amount committed. But here's the difference between the two. 
One is faithful to the company. The other is faithful to you. So the one, again, both committed, both faithful, both always do what they say. But the one, because of his commitment to the company, he might end up letting you go. That you might be getting in the way of the company. And so he lets you go because you're a problem. And he's committed. He's faithful to the company. Second boss, he comes to you and he says, I'm with you no matter what. If this ship sinks, we're going to sink together. I'm faithful to you. See, both are faithful. Both are true to their word. Both are committed. Both will do what they say. But one is saying, I'm faithful to you. I'm committed to you. I'm for you. What we see in this, in this passage is that we're not just praising God for generally the fact that he does what he says or generally the fact that he's faithful. We're praising God for the fact that he will be faithful to us, that the God who cannot lie will certainly make good on his promises to his people. I would bet for most of us, one of the biggest challenges in our lives is fear. We're afraid of a lot of things. We're afraid of personal things. We're afraid of things going on in our society. We're afraid of what we see going on in the church. We're afraid for our kids. We're afraid for a lot of things. There's a lot of reasons to be afraid. But here, God is showing us that He is utterly faithful that he's on our side, that he is carrying us. And so here, here's the wild thing about knowing this God. You know, I presented the, the, the example about these two bosses, right? One that's committed to the company, one that's committed to you, and the one that's committed to you, he says, I'm with you no, no matter what. If, even if the ship sinks, I'm, I'm with you. But guess what? The God we serve, he doesn't have to pick between the two. He's both utterly committed to us and he will not let the ship sink. The death of Jesus clearly demonstrates that God loves sinners and the resurrection of Jesus certainly declares that God will not let the ship sink. That if he's on our side, then our future is secure. If he's on our side, then there's nothing that could come in the future that could get in the way of us experiencing a bright, eternal, forever with God. Nothing. And the, the Apostle Paul, he picks up on this. Uh, you would think that a psalm like this with only two verses, it might get forgotten. It might be overlooked. Not so. Psalm 117, you might say, is famous. In Romans chapter 15, Paul quotes Psalm 117 and he throws it into a package for us. And he shows us exactly what it is that God is up to. In Romans 15, verses 8 and 9, Paul says, For I tell you that Christ... Talking about Jesus became a servant to the circumcised or to the Jews to show God's truthfulness. What's he saying? He's saying God's faithful. Why? He says in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. So here's the first reality of Jesus Christ coming into the world. God had made this promise. And 50 years went by. 100 years went by. 500 years went by. 1,000 years went by. 1,500 years went by. And time kept passing. Time kept passing. Would God be faithful? Would he be true? But then when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. God made good on the promise. He's truthful. But then here's the other thing that Paul says. He says, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. And here's the other thing in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Who are the Gentiles? The nations. So he's saying, here's the two reasons that Jesus came into the world. To prove that God is utterly faithful. To prove that God will always come through on his promises. And to show his great saving love for sinners. That when we want to know, is God faithful? And we look at the cross, we see at the same time the utter faithfulness of God and the enduring love of God. That when God shows his greatest act of faithfulness, he simultaneously shows his greatest act of love. So how do we respond? Two things. Uh, one, 
One is that if God is faithful, guys, we always have hope. We always have hope. No matter what we're in, no matter what we're going through, we always have hope. We always know that, that God is for us and he won't let the ship sink. He's looked at us and he said, I'm for you, I'm with you. I won't let you go. And guess what? This thing is not headed in the wrong direction. God will not choose between his people and his plan. We have hope. But here's the other thing. If God is faithful, then let us be patient. Waiting is hard. Waiting is hard. Knowing that you've been promised something and time passes. Feeling like you're owed something, time passes. Waiting is hard. But here, here's what we see. At just the right time, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. So let's be patient. This loving God, who clothes us in His steadfast love, He not only knows what we need, but He knows exactly when we need it. And at just the right time, He will come through. So like I said, next week we're basically going to pick up there and see other ways that God's love leverages His goodness for us. Uh, but finally today, finally, what difference does the love of God make? The love of God fuels our praise. The love of God fuels our praise. Psalm 117 begins and ends exactly the same way. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Uh, last week, you and I took the Lord's Supper together. If you were here, we took the Lord's Supper together. And, man, it's, it's really precious that Jesus has only given us a few things that he wants us to do again and again and again and again. And one of those things, one of those things that Jesus has given us to do again and again and again and again is to take the bread and to take the cup and to remember God's great love for us. That over and over and over and over, it is put before our face the great enduring love of God for sinners. Over and over and over again, we are reminded that this God, this God of the nations, this God of the universe, He is a God who is filled with mercy and grace. And that calls us to praise Him, that calls us to worship Him, that calls us to join in on the celebration. And if you're here today, and if you're honest with yourself, you've, you've, never, you've never praised God for His love. You've never seen His love and been moved to worship I just want to ask, what else is there that you could see? What more could he do than to people like us who have turned from him, people like us who have tried so hard to live without him, people like us who have literally thought in our heart, I just wish God would get out of my life, that he came after us, that he sent his own son to live and die and rise for sinners. What more could he do to induce us to praise, to lift him high, to worship him? I know when I think about um, what it is I'm going to be leaving here this morning thinking, praying, meditating about, um, it is this. You know, there's a lot of things that are important. There's a lot of things that even as a pastor, I feel like are important for, for me, important for you. But I'm just, I'm not sure that there's anything that would be more important than getting a deep, settled, felt sense that God loves us. The ripple effects of that in our life, how that hits our fears, how that fits our, hits our insecurities, how that hits our guilt, how that hits Every single part of who we are, the deepest crevices of the darkness of our heart, I'm not sure that there's anything more important than as Paul prayed for that church in Ephesus, that we would come to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And so as I pray that for me, as I pray that for us, uh, here's two specific things that I think are very important impacts 
from sensing, knowing, receiving God's love. In conclusion, two things. First is this. Fear, fear is not a very good motivator for praise. Uh, Fear might make us submit to someone. Fear might make us grovel at the feet of someone. Fear might make us pretend to praise someone so that we'll get whatever it is that they're offering us. But fear is not a very good motivator for praise. But what is a good motivator for praise is love. To know His love, to be soaked in His love. That if this church gets drenched in the love of God, we will be a praising people. And we are. But we will lift him higher and higher and higher and higher as we come to know his love deeper and deeper and deeper. And here's the other thing. And this is specifically related to Psalm 117. Guilt is not a good motivator for missions. Yeah, maybe, maybe we'll give a little bit or maybe we would you know, feel like we don't do enough, or, or maybe every once in a while when we absolutely get cornered because someone asks us a bunch of questions and we realize, I actually have to talk about Jesus in this moment, maybe we will. No, guilt is not a good motivator for missions. But what is, is this good news of Jesus Christ washing over us, pouring over us, showing us that our eternal future is secure forever knowing that it was while we were sinners Christ died for us, knowing that His love doesn't go up and His love doesn't go down, that we rest in the middle of His steadfast love. That is a motivator for missions. That will send us to the nations. That will get us excited about giving and praying and going so that the entire earth might know that there is a great God of love, that this great God of love deserves our praise and our worship forever. So what difference does the love of God make? I I think it makes all the difference in the world. And so let's pray to that end. God, these things, uh, these truths, we can analyze them, we can think hard about them, we can grow and swell in our knowledge of them, What we're praying today, God, is that you would drive them deep into our hearts. That we would know in every deep, dark crevice of our hearts that you love us. Lord, that we would live out of the overflow of you pouring down your love into our hearts. That it would send us, some of us, to to a life of missions. That it would send some of us to give and to go and to pray and to want for people all over the world to know about who you are. But ultimately, God, even just more fundamental than that, that as you pour your love, that we would be moved to praise you. (laughs) That all the other things that might capture our hearts might slip away. That all the other things that, that we might give our time and attention to, that they might fall into the background, but that you, this God, who has a great love and whose faithfulness endures forever, that you would become the object of our praise. That you would be the one that we lift high. You would be the one who gets the best of our heart. God, only you can do that. Only you can melt our hearts. We long for you to do it now. In Jesus' name.